you can't design the future in an Excel spreadsheet, like period. All that an Excel spreadsheet defines for you is the data that you've accrued on how things have worked in the past, right? So let's like get like in that frame of mind of understanding if you want to be competitive in the future, you want to figure out what to do, the past doesn't predict how that plays out. But more companies are aging out of the Fortune 500 at a faster rate than they ever have done before because their business models are reaching the end of their maturity, right? And fundamentally, they're not finding ways to pivot into new business models, fundamentally, that are based on new understandings of how they can serve their customers, right? Yep. And I think that is the thing we need to situate with leaders is you're looking to build a future fit organization. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience. Hi, everyone. As we wrap up season four of the Human Insights Podcast, we wanted to share a few bonus episodes with you. Over the next few weeks, we're rebroadcasting three LinkedIn Live conversations that Andy and Janelle had as part of their user-tested book tour. In this episode, Andy talks with Ian Roberts, Chief Operating Officer at IDEO. IDEO is a global design and consulting firm and advocate for design thinking. We hope you enjoy the show. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us on this LinkedIn Live conversation. Um, I'm Andy McMillan. I'm the CEO at User Testing, and uh, I'm really excited to have Ian Roberts joining us for, uh, for this conversation. I'll let Ian introduce himself in, in just a moment. Um, but we're doing this as part of a virtual book series tour where we're kicking off uh, celebrating and announcing a book that we've written on a whole bunch of aspects of how research and uh, things like design thinking and how you scale something we call human insights throughout an organization. Um, so with that, let's kick off and just have a little bit of a dialogue and conversation. So Ian, thanks for joining us. Um, Ian is the as a partner and, and COO of IDEO. Uh, which is a, an organization that's really led, I think, in this whole space around design thinking and, and how to bring uh, research and all kinds of uh, other customer-centric behaviors into organizations. So with that, Ian, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your work uh, and some of the clients and things that you've been focused on uh, would be great. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today, Andy, and congratulations on getting the actual hard galley of the book. It's a tremendous moment, right? Um, yes. So yeah, I'm Ian, uh, and whilst I'm the, the chief operating officer of IDEO, the reality is I'm a designer and an engineer. I've spent my entire career um, helping companies figure out um, how to put people in the center of technological advancements, how to shape technology in pursuit of better outcomes for, for people. Um, I've I've bounced around at IDEO for a, for a long while now. I've been there 20 years, been in a lot of different places. Um, and my work, honestly, is, is always about um, working with uh, young companies, working with established companies to help them get more obsessed with their customers, right? To help them fundamentally uh, think about the choices they're making, the products they're designing, and how to create more value for, for those customers over time, be it B2B or B2C. Um, and, you know, the role of research, the role of insights in, in that space is just, it's just absolutely pivotal, which is why I'm, I'm pretty excited for us to be having a conversation today, Andy. I, it's great. And I know um, you've worked with a bunch of great companies like Dyson and Ford and, and things like that. Uh, and really a lot of what uh, I understand IDEO to do, maybe, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is really around this concept of design thinking and how to really put mm -hmm. the customer in the center of a process as you mm -hmm. design solutions and products. Could you maybe share for folks that aren't familiar a little bit of like, what is design thinking and, and why is it so powerful? Yeah, I mean, 
at a fundamental level, so many of the companies I've worked with, you said Ford, Dyson, Google, like a full list of, 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 of the kind of big companies you would know about, um, they usually lead with, we have a technology and we're trying to figure out the products to make to retain a customer, or we have a dominant business model. And in that dominant business model, we know how we make money. And fundamentally, again, we're trying to make stuff to go through that system. Um, at IDEO, we didn't define this, but we practice in this space of bringing together viability, right? Feasibility and desirability is like three fundamental things that we're trying to look at in any problem that is being solved. Increasingly, we're thinking about what it means to design responsibly as a wrapper around that as well. But it's that intersection of um, fundamentally what's technologically possible, actually how's a company gonna make money out of it and what do people need and want? Right. And how can we look at the world through a new set of lenses around what people need and want that I think is very core to who we are as an organization. I mean, our DNA comes from technology and engineering. But when we brought actually Jane Fulton Suri, who was a social scientist, into the organization many years ago, she began to bring this idea of people centered design into actually fundamentally what we were doing. And we've been known for that for the last 20 years, for as long as I've been in the company. And we definitely apply that approach. I wouldn't, I don't like to call it a process because a process suggests that it's, um, uh, there's, there's one way of doing things. And as designers, I think we have a toolkit and we lean on different methodologies dependent on the problem we're trying to solve. But we've been known for bringing that into helping a customer or a client solve a particular problem. How do I know what to design next? And the other thing that IDEO has been working on in the last five years, though, that's maybe what we're less known for, is working with those large organizations to help them figure out how to do this themselves as well. So not just designing for, but actually designing with those organizations to help them build the institutional muscle memory, right, and the DNA to be able to do this themselves to be more competitive. Yeah, I, I agree. We had a couple of conversations uh, prior to the book or anything else just about how uh, what our companies are doing. And I, one of the things I really appreciate about those conversations was the focus on a little bit like how do we teach people to fish? How do we get folks to make this part of what they do? Um, also, yeah. how do we get them to sort of make this a behavior sort of across the organization or a capability or a concept? Um, one of the big aspects of that that I think is new for a lot of folks, and one of the things we do talk quite a bit about in the, the book is how to collect this kind of feedback, like it's, it's different than simply like putting sensors everywhere mm -hmm. and letting data roll in. Like there's an aspect of like, no, there are actual people that are your customers and, you know, they want to give you feedback and they want to be part of this process. And, you know, maybe hearing them is valuable. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about the sort of the, the history of collecting feedback? Um, I saw you do a great interview on, on Bloomberg at one point where you're talking about how COVID has yeah. changed aspects of this and what folks do. So can you just maybe share with folks that have tuned in a little bit about, you know, how do you, how do you think about people collecting this kind of feedback? How do you see that changing over time? Uh, mm -hmm. How do people really connect with real people and real customers to do this? Yeah. I mean, look, let's rewind 10 years ago before your product existed, your, your business existed. And before even this way of thinking was really that dominant in the marketplace. And we would consistently find that the, the understanding the customer was the role of marketing. Right. Um, right. But actually surely serving the customers is a, is a job of the business. So everybody needs to have a better and a deeper understanding of what customers, uh, what, how, frankly, not even what their needs and wants are, but how they're living their lives and how your brand or your product or experience plays a role in that. That's so, so, so important for anybody in the organization than the CEO down, right? And so 
we started, like the, the history from our perspective was not just looking at market research. Market research is very valuable, right? But it has a particular role to play. But fundamentally, taking um, a, a page out of uh, social sciences and ethnography, getting into people's lives and experiencing their lives one-on-one -on -one so that you can understand not just what they're saying, right? And not just what they're doing, but what they're thinking and feeling by getting to that deeper level of understanding thinking and feeling. And so you would often find in a market research study, someone would say one thing, but when you go and like spend time with them, their lived experience is very different and it allows you to tune th into things very, very differently. And so our approach has been deeply rooted in that we want to understand people's lived experience. The reality is that that is a very expensive way of gaining insight and inspiration. It's very valuable. I don't think that will ever go away. But what's been interesting over the last 10 years, and it's been accelerated by the pandemic, um, is, this, is this idea that we need ingenious new solutions to be with customers, to be with people where they are, as opposed to have to ship a team to go and like, understand and be with them one-on-one. -on -one. Right. 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 And so products and platforms like user testing allow us to definitely access um, and spend time with people and meeting them on their terms almost. Um, and one of the things we learned in the pandemic is, well, how do you do research when you can't get on a plane? Right. And so we've, 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 uh, we've built our own network as well, right? That kind of like using tools like yourselves, but also build our own network that allows us to, you know, understand what does it, what does it mean to be on the ground in Malaysia right now or Estonia or different parts of the world? So I think, I think this a distributed model of a more mixed methods approach is going to be really, really important to our future. Yeah, I think uh, I completely agree. One of the things that we have talked about is um, in some ways, these digital business models that move so quickly and so many people can come onto a product quickly can also feel a little bit like they're disintermediating us from that face-to-face -face contact, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I use the example all the time internally at, at user testing that I don't even really have the opportunity to speak to the baristas at my Starbucks anymore. Like I used to know them and now I mobile order and I go in mm -hmm. and I grab my coffee and that's really wonderful, but it's sort of interesting. And I, I appreciate that when I've got my five-year-old with me, like I'm not standing in line to just order. Like mobile ordering is, is amazing, but at the yeah. same time, it, it can be viewed as an almost disintermediation from the real mm -hmm. relationship. And so how do you flip it the other way around and go, well, what if all these people that are technologically connected now are actually kind of at our fingertips, like, you know, sort of use the technology to overcome that, that barrier. Um, but I still think, you know, your first point on a bit on how leaders are conditioned to believe this is expensive and hard and, and maybe valuable, but, but, you know, is it achievable? Is it doable? I mean, one of the quotes from the book that I have in my notes here that, that we have is, you know, some key decision makers have been conditioned to believe that numbers are all they need to make sound business decisions. Mm -hmm. And many of them don't realize what they're missing. Even though only 23% of initiatives driven by big data alone turn a profit, few leaders are making the connection. They don't realize yet that seeing the world through their customers' eyes is an ability mm -hmm. they need to drive real growth. How, how do you convince or convey to folks that this is important. I mean, so many folks go through business school, they maybe come up through the maybe finance side of the house or run a PL and like they live and die in dashboards and spreadsheets. And how do we how do we convince people that their customers aren't dashboards and spreadsheets? Like what do we all have to do to make that happen? I mean, so many feelings right now to in, in in a way to respond to that question. But um first is you can't design the future in an Excel spreadsheet. Like period. All that an Excel spreadsheet defines for you is the data that you've accrued on how things have worked in the past. 
right? So let's like get like in that frame of mind of understanding if you want to be competitive in the future, you want to figure out what to do. The past doesn't predict how that plays out. And now we're living in a moment where I don't know the specific um, stats. I don't have them at my fingertips, but more companies are aging out of the fortune 500 at a faster rate than they ever have done before because their business models are reaching the end of their maturity. Right. And fundamentally they're not finding ways to pivot into new business models fundamentally that are based on new understandings of how they can serve their customers. Right. Yep. And I think that is the thing we need to situate with leaders is you're looking to build a future fit organization, right? You're definitely facing the end in some way, shape or form of the runway of your business model. And the only place, I mean, if you believe Drucker, that the, 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 um, the, the purpose of a business is to, is to make and retain a customer is fundamentally to ask that question. Like what is the role of your brand in the lives of your customers? That's the only question that you can start with. And it's not, I think we have to change the perception that um, research is something that's done at the end of a process when we've defined all of the conditions and constraints and we're try trying to understand, is this design good or bad? I firmly believe that research has a role to play throughout the life cycle of any organization. And that is actually one of the most strategic levers that, that uh, the senior executive can use to understand like, where do I want to play in the future? And how early, how early, how early can they start that process? Like I've, I've heard you talk about this. I find it really compelling. Like how early in a process, you talk about, it's not at the end, like how early in a process could, could folks be thinking I mean, about this kind of feedback? Corporate strategy, right? Like actually where is our company going? What is our purpose? And what are the fundamental plays that we're going to make in order to be kept competitive in the future? Again, back to this idea, I firmly believe that you have to be able to prototype that future and test it and learn to gain new evidence to make smarter strategic decisions, right? Uh, you mentioned I'd worked with um, Ford Motor Company before. Uh, I spent a lot of time working with Ford. And the great thing that um, Jim Hackett and Jim Farley did in terms of bringing their executive team into the lives of their customers and using that fundamentally to say, what choices are we gonna make about where we're gonna double down on resources, how we're gonna view the customer differently and it's just, it's, it's ended in them being much more agile as an organization and fundamentally being able to build, um, you know, a product suite that is really resonating in the market in the way that it hasn't done in the prior decade. And, you know, got a 20 year stock, uh, high stock price at the moment because of the fact that they've making, made choices based upon what they really understand of the role their brand plays in the lives of their customers. Yeah, I think they uh, they put some really compelling vehicles out lately. I I, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if we've ever talked. My background, I, I grew up in the Detroit area. I grew up in a GM family, so my dad mm -hmm. was a uh, uh, went up through the GM ranks and, and uh, ran plant floor systems there at EDS. And so I was a GM family. But my first car was actually a Ford. So my dad mm -hmm. was an executive at GM, and my first car, strangely, was a Ford. It was just we bought it at a GM dealer, but it was a and I love that car. But I felt like um, the U.S. automakers for many years started to feel like designed by committee and designed by data. You know, it was like the data tells us this is the car everybody wants and they just weren't mm -hmm. compelling automobiles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really do feel like this latest line from Ford sort of flips that narrative for me. I mean, they're, they're, some of them are quite nostalgic, some of them are quite forward looking, but like, mm -hmm. I, I think it's really exciting. I mean, I'm, the, the thing that, the one thing that just makes me smile, frankly, right? In, in seeing what their, what their team has done. Um, in transforming, you, you think about what it would have taken to convince an American customer that an F-150 could be electric, 
So if you go to an F-150 and ask, do you want, a, do you want, sorry, you go to an F-150 customer and say, do you want an electric truck? The answer will be no. The answer will always be no, right? right. Until you can then say, well, do you want to be able to run your power tools off of the bed of the truck? Right? Do you want in an emergency to be able to actually plug uh, your truck in and run your home so that the food doesn't spoil in the fridge? Do you want your truck to actually fundamentally play a different role in your life? Oh, by the way, it's electric, right? Right. right. And that that flip and that insight, like that that's 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 the beauty of actually understanding customers in a way that isn't just what they say and do, but what they think and feel. So how how does a company Ford's a great example um, because it's it's not a new company, right? I mean, Ford's been around a hundred and. 50 years or something, right? How, how do you think about an organization at that size and scale? A global company, I mean, a, you know, Fortune 500 company, um, storied history, changing a culture to be more customer centric. Um, how, do you, how do you make that happen? Um, I think that's the thing I hear a lot of leaders talk about, even with digital transformation as an example, they'll say, well, you know, I've got a whole army of people, even in my executive ranks that just don't, they didn't, they didn't experience the same customer experience my customer goes through now. They didn't come up through the ranks when things yeah. were like that. You've got, you've got people that have probably spent 35, 40 years at Ford focused on the combustion engine and selling to that Ford driver that you were just describing. Mm-hmm. And they believe they know that customer, right? They'll mm-hmm. tell you, no, no, I've talked to so many Ford F-150 customers. And to your point, what they do not want is an electric F-150. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do leaders, one of the things we talk about in the book is sort of like, how do you scale this kind of concept? Mm-hmm. Like, how do leaders change cultures to be more mm-hmm. customer centric so whether or not it I mean any of our clients we would refer to it as a, as a beacon project approach right and beacon being you're creating an environment where the executive team has sponsored us to do to, to work differently fundamentally right that needs to be built in place because otherwise you're going to have the organizational antibodies to crush innovation and frankly most organizations are actually built to mitigate risk to ensure quality, and that's the antithesis of innovation, right? And so you need an executive who's going to be be able to say, I'm going to give air cover, I'm going to provide a spotlight and an environment in which a team is allowed to work differently. Next would actually be that team isn't just going to be researchers because it's too important for this to be just the researchers. That team needs to be multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary. I need to have experts from marketing and research and engineering and technology Right, um, and help them think about that problem in as in as broad a sense as they possibly can, and then fundamentally, like then you know, you do begin by starting with helping that team understand the lives of the customer that they're trying to serve, and how they can serve it differently. And you'll find that actually you start to get sparks of um, insight coming out of a technologist looking at that problem in the very early stages a strategist, a marketer, all looking at that, of the customer through, the, through those lenses. And what it will require is, you'll, the, the, we see this time and time and time again, is the company probably already has the good ideas, right? Yep. So off, often we go into these environments and there's no new ideas that we're gonna give you that, again, that, that, that we're gonna be blowing your mind. The problem isn't actually having the new ideas. The problem is actually, bringing people together to understand which of the ideas you already had are the most important ones because they serve the needs of your customers, right? Let's go back down there again. Yeah. And then what do you need to do to clear, clear the way for those ideas to turn into really, really amazing things that are going to power your growth and success over time? 
I like that a lot. One of the experiences I've had in this kind of environment before I find fascinating is when when executives are able to do that. The funny part is everyone else who's not in that beacon project, the first thing they do is say, well, that's they don't get to do that. Like, that's not how we do things. And when you play defense, mm-hmm. they know they are. They're allowed to be. Mm-hmm. And then the next point of feedback is, well, how come we don't get to do that? And then you go, mm-hmm. okay, well, now now we're mm-hmm. starting to change how the organization mm-hmm. operates, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think that's uh, that's spot on. We have a, a good question in the chat I want to pass along to you, Ian, and see if you have some thoughts on, which is um, when you do this kind of research and you go collect this mm-hmm. kind of feedback, um, when do you – know to either listen closely or maybe disregard results of research is that usually more about feeling like the answer maybe makes you address the methodology or like when do you when should when should anyone ever disregard the feedback they get from customers or the research that they see yeah i mean it's a really great question because it points at something that is um it's it's not binary that we're not trying to find a yes or no answer right often the space that we're looking at is uh synthetic in that um you know it's about better understanding and learning and so in in an odd way i think we too for too often we expect we've expected research be it uh market research or product evaluation to return like the yes no answer there is a role for, for skilled leadership here right that is balancing all of the data that you're synthesizing together from qualitative and quantitative methods and intuition and experience, right? right? Um, and there's no simple answer like, yes, in this circumstances, you should disregard, but we can never get away from the fact that intuition is an important part, right? Um, uh, of leading an organization through change and in fundamentally understanding what it's trying to do and how it's trying to do things differently next. I think that I like the point on intuition, especially because one of the things that I think is so critical and is missing when you take only a data centric approach is it's it's tough to build intuition about where the market's going and what your customer needs are. If you're just staring at dashboards, the only intuition Mm -hmm. you're going to have is what things move the dashboard, not what do Mm -hmm. customers actually need. And I think um, that's both good and bad. I mean, sometimes intuition is learning that something didn't work. Something wasn't received Mm -hmm. well by customers. Um, And so I think you're right. I I like the idea that an, an aspect of gathering this over time is building up that intuition and that intuition helps you mm-hmm. evolve and interpret future research as you start to build up an understanding of, of your mm-hmm. customer. Um, here's another one I think is, is quite insightful and in, um, an area where we're actually seeing some customers do some really interesting work to the point, to the point you made in about your past data doesn't necessarily represent your future. This, this um, question that came in the chat was around what are your thoughts on diversity of representation being important or not important to understanding and valuing, sorry, valuing your customers. And the example I was thinking of in my head when I read the question is we have a couple of uh, very large customers in very traditional industries that are sort of realizing they've got a feedback loop of if we only talk to the same people and market to the same people, our customers will be the same people. And so they're in some ways sort of deliberately trying to break that cycle by reaching into new places. And I think that's a great example of where the past data isn't going to lead you to that conclusion. You sort of have to step outside that box and, and go yeah. do that. But what are your thoughts on um, diversity and representation as part of um, this methodology? Really important topic. And, and one that um, maybe two or three, two or three ways to think about responding to the question. One representation of like understanding who you're designing for in the broadest sense of your customer base is supremely important, right? We've got to get out of and break the bubble that we're frankly, we live in here in Silicon Valley, that the world looks like what it looks like outside our front door. It doesn't, 
right? right? And so any way that we're able to fundamentally debunk those assumptions that we're designing for ourselves, we're designing for other people, right? So representation of our customer base, diversity within that is going to matter immensely. The second thing I'll say, though, is that I think we're, we're re reaching a bit of an inflection point here where um, what is the role of the designer or the researcher? Actually, I think it's beginning to move from we design for you to we design with you. And so begin to if you take that to its natural conclusion, we begin to kind of get out of the way as designers and researchers a little bit and provide the tools and environment for communities to actually identify what are the best solutions for them. Right. So I think we're going to start to see that shift in terms of like what it means for um, design research to be working with uh, customers across the world. And I think I think the last thing I'll say in that space is I think I think we're going to start to um, and this is maybe further out, but I think we're going to start to see uh, questions around what does it mean for um, people to participate? Right in research, how is how are research practices um, not just extractive? Right, they're creating value for companies. How are they participatory, and how do they create prosperity for the entire network? And so, I think I think this this thread is like a supremely important thread that I know so many of us are working on to try and make design and research, frankly, work better and be more responsible for everybody. I love I love that answer. I love the question. I feel like uh, I. I probably could have set us up for an hour to talk about how to answer and go through that question. Yeah. A really good and, and uh, important topic. I also like your point on your last bit, which is one of the things that um, I'm a big believer in is that we are moving towards an era of more trusted and opt in relationships with our customers. Um, the reality is, and you know, we, we saw this in the last week with Facebook saying they're going to get 10 billion less in revenue because people are opting yep. out of being tracked on their iPhones. Like we don't want to be tracked even by the brands. I really like, I don't know that I want to feel spied upon, but I'm happy to participate. I would love, I'm a, you know, I'm a busy person. I'm a CEO of a public company. I would love for mm -hmm. the airlines I fly with to ask me for feedback on the apps that I'm using every day. I would love for Starbucks mm -hmm. to collect my feedback on the mobile app experience. Like, and these are good and bad experiences, right? So I think um, the idea of providing a way for brands to really engage with their customers in a way that their customers see benefits. So yeah, like I'm happy to provide feedback on this and share my experience, mm -hmm. but it's trusted. It's a real sort of relationship. It's not just that they're tracking my digital exhaust as I try to use their mm -hmm. product and then making guesses about what it is that I want as a, as a yeah. person. So I think that's a, I like that point quite a bit. I mean, it, it's going to happen from two fronts, right? Legislation is going to make it happen and consumer sentiment is going to make it happen. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I can imagine we could spend an entire hour or more talking about this topic because I think it's going to go to some really interesting spaces um, in terms of what it means for brands and their customers to be in like a participatory ecosystem that yep. is fundamentally different from the one they're in today. It's a radically different relationship. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, maybe we'll uh, we'll have to find some forums. Maybe we'll get you on our podcast and uh, we can have a, a a conversation topic on on just that thread, which I think is fascinating. That'd be great. And we're starting to see companies uh, talk about that. So um, I do want to respectful Ian of your time and, and folks that were tuning in. Um, I think at the top of the hour we we're going to wrap this. Um, this was really great. Uh, lots of good insights for, from you, Ian. And um, again, we're excited about the book coming out. Um, the book is really focused on a lot of the concepts that Ian and I were talking about. How do you think about collecting this kind of feedback? Um, how do you prioritize the response and feedback that you're getting? And then most importantly, 
How do you scale that in an organization? Um, in the book, Janelle and I have um, conversations and, and case studies from over 30 different companies who share how they've collected this kind of feedback, how it changes their product or design or marketing process, um, and some prescriptions on how to actually go do this in your organization. So while the book starts with some lofty visions of what it could look like as an organization to do this, um, it pretty quickly gets pragmatic about what are the kind of examples and use cases and things that you can go do and the prescriptions on how to do them. So again, thank you again, Ian, for your time. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to chat with you. Um, yeah. Thanks to everybody who tuned in. Yeah, thank you, Andy, and congratulations with the with the book. Um, it was a pleasure spending time with you this morning. Appreciate it. All right, thank you, everyone. Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.